here we are, right? We're sheltered in place again, uh, at least it sounds, until the end of this month. Still in what they're calling phase one of now Governor Newsom's four-stage plan for the reopening of California. And although there haven't been any, any dates that have been attached to any of these different um, milestones yet, some are estimating that it could be a matter of months before we're ready and allowed to move kind of through that second phase and on into the third phase, which is where religious gatherings will start to be allowed uh, once again. And at that point, probably subject to some pretty strict distancing requirements and potentially some limitations in size. And certainly the news that I think that we got this week wasn't quite what any of us wanted, although realistically it's probably not far from what most of us uh, expected. And already, as you've seen on the news, there's been talk of court challenges and there are public demonstrations against some of these restrictions and against this plan going forward, especially I think as we look around and we see other states that are seemingly uh, starting to open up sooner. And so we start asking questions, well, you know, how long can we possibly keep up this virtual church deal? And what in the world are we even supposed to do during this time? And I want to take just a little break from our story in the book of Acts to look together this morning at a text that I think is going to give us uh, some great insight and really what is some eerily fitting application uh, from the history of Israel to our current circumstances. So uh, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to look together for some direction. We're going to look for some encouragement uh, in Jeremiah chapter 29, as we uh, learn some lessons from captivity. So let's pray and just ask the Lord uh, to bless his word this morning. So Father, we do thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this time that you have set aside, Lord, and the means that you have provided for us to be together and to study your word. We thank you, Lord, most of all that your spirit is here teaching us, uh, giving us um, just illumination and insight into your text. And we pray for that today, Lord. We pray for prepared hearts as your spirit would speak, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 29. So we'll get to his story in our Focus 2020 through the Bible reading as we get long about into August at some point. But the prophet Jeremiah, you may have heard him referred to as the weeping prophet. And uh, it's probably because of the way that his heart broke for his people. And he was called to minister primarily to that southern kingdom of Judah during the days immediately prior to and then actually in the midst of what would be their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And that is actually during the times right at the end of the book of 2 Kings, which we just finished up in our reading uh, this week. And as you survey the history of the time and as you look at these books, it's not hard to understand why Jeremiah wept. He had this passionate message that was ignored politically and ignored spiritually. We know that he was ridiculed and he was maligned personally. And uh, I love what one author wrote about Jeremiah 
He writes this, that when Michelangelo painted Jeremiah on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, he depicts him in a posture of despair, like a man who has wept so long he has no tears left to shed. His face is turned to one side like a man who's been battered by many blows. His shoulders are hunched forward, weighed down by the sins of Judah. His eyes also are cast down as if he can no longer bear to see God's people suffer. And his hand covers his mouth. Perhaps he has nothing left to say. The Lord had given him this critical message, right, entrusted to him as he tried to warn his wandering people to repent and to return. And all throughout the book, we have this series of these hard sayings against the harsh reality of the sins of Judah. It's page after page of the Lord's messages of judgment delivered by Jeremiah against all of these unrighteous kings and these false prophets. It was chapter after chapter of these really difficult texts that uh, predicted the destruction of Jerusalem as they would be carried away by Babylon. It was 605 BC in Jeremiah chapter 25 when Jeremiah predicted that the nation of Judah would fall to this relatively newly established Babylonian empire. And he predicted there in that text that the city of Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. And he warned that the Jews would then be force marched into exile in Babylon. And then there's also this remarkable prediction that after 70 years, that the Jews would return to Judah, they would repopulate Jerusalem, they would rebuild their temple. And then we see, of course, that just as he said it would happen, it was in 597 BC, it was during the reign of King Jehoiachin, that Jerusalem was conquered. The first wave of Jews was deported to Babylon. We read about it just this week in 2 Kings 24, in verse 10, it said that at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. Now, we know that Jeremiah himself wasn't a part of this first group of Jews that were deported. He stayed back there in Jerusalem, and the Lord had him write a letter to encourage those leaders who were in captivity in Babylon so that they could encourage the people that they were leading. And it's the text of that letter that's the text for our text this morning. And we start out in verse 1. It says that these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this happened after Jeconiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. And this letter, verse 3, was sent by the hand of Elsah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So this Babylonian siege 
against the city of Jerusalem actually lasted for nearly two and a half years. And during that time, there were a number of these different deportations as these different groups of Jews were carried away into captivity. And by the time King Jeconiah and the rest of the court of uh, the royal court was taken to Babylon, at that point there was still a sort of a sizable population, mainly of kind of the poorest people of Judah and Jerusalem that were left. And yet we know that they would very soon be also carried away into exile. And it was about at this point that Jeremiah sent this letter. And we see here that it was part of kind of a, a diplomatic envoy, if you will, part of a diplomatic dispatch that was sent by Zedekiah, who was the king who'd been sort of put there by Nebuchadnezzar to rule on his behalf. Now, Jeremiah, though, we know had this heart of a shepherd, and he wanted to get word to the people from the Lord to enlighten them and to encourage them in their life in captivity in Babylon. Here they are suddenly in a strange land. They're at the mercy of a purely pagan society. They're completely unable to worship the way they were used to worshiping back in their temple in Jerusalem. They'd just been plucked right from the land of promise. They'd been placed into exile and in isolation from everything that they once knew. And so it's in the midst of this difficult time right, that the Lord, through Jeremiah, wants to help them to adjust and to know how they were supposed to conduct themselves. He wants to encourage them. Right? How were they supposed to live? How is it that they could resist this exile? How is it that they could plan their rebellion against the Babylonian conquerors? Right? So he writes to their leaders. He begins by, first of all, watch the way he directs them right back to the word of God. Because it's at this time Remember, the Lord still had something to say. He still had some words of encouragement for this captive people. And so in verse 4, Jeremiah begins by writing, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now we read this verse, and this might seem like kind of a strange way for God to start out encouraging these people. But notice that the very first thing the Lord reminds them is that he is the one who had brought this captivity upon them. And because of that, they needed to accept their circumstances. It wasn't the Babylonians who'd done this. It wasn't even Nebuchadnezzar who had done this. And I love what Matthew Henry wrote about this. He said that all the force of the king could not have done this apart from the will of God. So it was God himself that had brought this upon them because they had brought this upon themselves. So their captivity was directly related to God's covenant people and the way that they had turned away from their covenant God. And we know the story, right? We've been reading about it in the books of the Samuels and in the accounts of the kings, this increasing wickedness and the idolatry as this nation drifted further and further away from the Lord. Joshua 
way back in his farewell address, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he saw this coming. And look what he said in Joshua 23. He said, Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from this good land which he has given you. Now, no one ever likes to admit it, but when judgment or when discipline comes to us from the Lord, it always comes to us because we've earned it. Now, that being said, I want to answer this current question that I know is currently rattling around in your mind as we consider this concept in the midst of our current situation dealing with this coronavirus. Is this a case of divine discipline? Is this something that was brought down upon a world and upon our, uh, upon our country because of our increasing rebellion against him? Well, I think we can absolutely say for sure that we absolutely cannot be sure. Now, surely there are those who would say that they're sure, but I think that that's a stretch. Surely a stretch. So we can set this part of the discussion on the side, I think maybe for a different day. And what we do know for sure today is that whether or not this came from God, it absolutely has come through God. What I mean by that is whether or not he directly caused it, he has allowed it because, again, God is still omnipotent. He's still all-powerful. And notice the way he reminds the, the Jews of that, the way he identifies himself just right here in this verse. He refers to himself as the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And in our English Bibles, that word Lord in all capital letters is translated from Yahweh, or I am, right? That eternally existent, redemptive name for God who's engaged in the lives of his people. So the Lord God of hosts is this God who's an all-powerful ruler over the entire universe, He's all-powerful over people, he's all-powerful over history, and he's even all-powerful over pandemics. So whether it's a, a difficult issue that we're up against in our personal lives, or whether it's something that we're all dealing with collectively, with like some sort of a global pandemic, God may not have been the initiator of it, but he has absolutely permitted it to happen. And we can be assured that not only has he allowed it, but that he's also working in it. And I believe that this is the fact that should be at the foundation of our response to this current situation that we're in. 
So these exiles here, they'd lost everything but their lives and whatever few possessions they could carry with them to Babylon. They had lost their freedoms. They were now captive. They'd been taken from their homes. They'd lost the, all their means of making a living. They were separated from relatives and friends, some of whom probably died in this long march from Jerusalem to Babylon. So no matter how they looked at it, this whole situation seemed hopeless. And yet the first encouragement that the Lord gives to them is to accept what's happened to them as coming from the hand of God and then to let God have his way in it. And we all know it's true in our own lives that one of the very first steps of turning a trial into triumph is to simply accept the situation and then put ourselves into the hands of a loving God who never makes mistakes. But watch what he does now, because not only does he call us to accept it, but watch the way he continues even to call us to thrive in it. Because here they were in captivity in Babylon. What in the world were they supposed to do? Look at verse 5. The Lord says, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. Notice the Lord doesn't tell the Babylonian captives to gather weapons or to assemble an army or to ruin the economy or to overthrow the government. Instead, he tells them, you might as well settle in because you're going to be there for a long time, right? Long enough that they would plant gardens and eat the fruit of those gardens, that they would get married and see the fruit of those marriages, that they would build homes. Effectively, he's telling them, get on with your lives there where you are. Remember, it was God's plan for those people to be in captivity and to live there in difficulty for 70 full years until his purposes in them had been fully accomplished. And the problem was that prior to this, there were these false prophets, like a guy named Hananiah back in chapter 28, who had convinced the people by telling them that their stay in Babylon would be over in just a couple of years. So there wasn't any need to kind of settle down and to try to live any kind of a normal life or to try to flourish where it was that they were. And instead, all they had to do was kind of grin and bear it, just hunker down a little bit and just make it through this. But the Lord says, no, he says, that's not the plan. That's not my purpose. I want more for you in this. I want you more than just to make it through. I want you to be strengthened and I want you to grow. Right? He says there that he wants them that you may be increased there and not diminished. God wanted his covenant people to multiply in Babylon in just the same way they had multiplied in Egypt. So exile didn't at all mean that God had forgotten about them or that he wanted to destroy them. The opposite was true. 
He wanted to grow them and he wanted to purify them and he wanted to prepare them for what it is that he had next for them. Did you know historically, you guys are a smart bunch, I know that you know this, but the church and God's people have always been at their best and at their strongest during difficult times of greatest adversity. Because it's during those seasons when so much is stripped away from us that we realize where it is that our true riches and where our true resources really are. And sometimes it's said that you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And we're certainly a long way from that point. But when all those things that we call church are suddenly taken away from the church, right? When all those beautiful buildings and the barista bars and all the church lobbies where people are, you know, sipping their made-to-order custom lattes after service, right? When all the big lighting and the, the slick presentations, when all that is taken away and all we're left with is, what? The Word of God. And we're left with the Word of God and the fellowship of the saints. We're left simply with that unbreakable connection that we all still share in the Spirit, even though we aren't together. But we still have all of that. In fact, we still have every element, we have every principle of our faith still absolutely intact. We still have God's grace and his mercy. We still have our priceless forgiveness and justification, right? Those things have not changed at all. And our call to to love and to minister to one another, that has not changed at all. Jesus hasn't changed. The Spirit of God has not ceased to be working. The Father hasn't ceased to be caring All of those things have stayed the same. It's just now how we're living in it. It's how we're expressing those things that may just look a little bit different for a season. So that it becomes this unprecedented season of growth. Both for us personally as well, I believe, for the church collectively. And it also is an opportunity, I think, specifically for our witness. Because look next at what the Lord calls for his people to do there during their captivity, not just to accept it, not even to thrive in it, but also, verse 7, to witness through it. Look in verse 7, he says, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. We say, wait, what? That We didn't even want to be here. We certainly don't want to stay here. And now, God, you want us to pray for the people who are keeping us here? And God says, absolutely, that's what I want you to do. God wanted them to do good 
in their new communities, right? To be a blessing to their Babylonian captors, even in their captivity. Remember, it was God who'd caused them to be in Babylon, and he wanted them to be a blessing wherever it was that they were. They were to be peacemakers, not to be troublemakers. And they were to pray sincerely for their enemies who just happened also to be the people who were in authority over them. They were called to pray for the peace of Babylon because God said that when that city has peace, you'll have peace as well. And you students of the New Testament, you know that both Paul and Peter made very similar exhortations to us as New Testament Christians. Paul wrote this to Timothy. He said that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And then Peter, I think, takes it a step further. He says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the kings as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now let's be honest, right? This is hard under the best of circumstances, but right about now, this is a real challenge. Especially since I know there are some who aren't so sure that our governing authorities are handling this crisis quite the way that they should be. And I, this morning, am not going to argue for or against that at all, because I am not any kind of an expert in public health policy or in infectious diseases or their origins or the way that they spread or any of it. I'm not an expert in whether or not these seemingly extreme measures that have been taken have been necessary or right, or whether they've been too extreme or not extreme enough, or whether it's been too long or whether it's not been long enough. Certainly, we are all grieved by the, some of the effects of it. All of those who are facing economic hardship and the people that are suffering from emotional isolation and people who are really in fear because of instable incomes. We all have an opinion about these things. And yet what I think is most important for us to point out this morning is that there is an incredible opportunity for us as the church in all of this, in the way that we respond to all of this, in the grace that we really choose to clothe our response. Because we can choose to be a people that other people see as those who are trusting in the Lord and trusting in God's ability to intervene and to work on our behalf, or we can choose to simply add our voices to the chaos of the world. 
and we appear no better than the world except that the world expects us to be better. They expect us to be different. They expect us to respond better and to respond differently. Right? They expect us as Christians to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, right? In love and in joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Instead of the stuff that comes right before that, Paul talks about hatred and contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies. That's all what we expect from the unsaved in the world. Now, I don't want anyone this morning to misunderstand me. I am not saying that we shouldn't have an opinion. I'm not saying that we shouldn't express that opinion. I'm not saying that even potentially that we shouldn't act upon that opinion if the Lord is leading us to act. But what I am saying is that there is so much more at stake here than what is simply right in front of us. There is so much more at stake here than simply recovering our rights because I really believe that there is an opportunity here for us to recover our witness. Notice that Paul's exhortation to Timothy, it's all focused on prayer, but prayer specifically so that we would be leading a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Because it's in living this kind of life, then we're doing what Jesus said, where we're acting as salt and light. Then we're allowing the gospel to freely flow forth from us. Then we're, we're setting things up so that the Father's name can be glorified. Because then we're acting like people of peace who are projecting peace and who are, better yet, proclaiming peace into the world infusing it into the chaos of this situation. And I think that the, the Lord next, he gives us some pretty specific direction on how it is that we, and of course, how the Babylonian exiles can help first to be at peace in their own hearts. And that's to cut out the chaos. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after seventy years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place." God says, look, I have already told you what my plan is. So stop listening to the false voices all around you and stay focused instead on the things that I have already said to you. Once again, our true hope is based on the word of God and not on whatever kind of dream messages that the false prophets may be giving to us. God had given them a good word, right? Literally, it's a, a gracious promise. He had told his people that he would deliver them and he would keep his promise. He would see them through this hard time. He would be the one to bring them back from it. They just didn't like the timeline. 
They didn't like the hardship that they knew was going to come as they waited on him to do what he promised. And frankly, the story that the false prophets were telling sounded a whole lot better. Right? Two years of captivity sounds a lot better than 70. And yet we all know there are never any shortcuts with God. He has the timing all worked out and his plans are perfect. They never fail. He knows just how long. He knows just how much. And we need as his people to simply rest in that. And the real problem here is that in listening instead to these false prophets, God's people were actually being prevented from doing the very things that he was telling them to do. Specifically, they were being prevented from settling into their trial and from being strengthened in the midst of it. Can I just say that too much news right about now I think could just about make us nuts, right? And, and just takes our eyes off of the Lord and the things that he really is trying to accomplish during this time, right? Because if you turn on your TV or you log on to the internet or you scroll through your newsfeed, the debate about this virus has become nothing different than, you know, my experts can beat up your experts, right? My doctors can contradict your doctors. And my latest study and my latest projection can just supersede your studies and your projections. And it's just exhausting. So the Lord says, don't be distracted by all of that, but be focused instead on me. It's absolutely part of our human nature to want to indulge in false hopes and to grasp at every straw, to seek out information that agrees with us. But all this does is lead to unrest. And instead, what Paul tells the Colossians, he exhorts them, he says, if then you were raised with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And then likewise to the Philippians, in Philippians 4.8, he says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, he says, meditate on these things. So what are those things? Well, they're the things that the Lord is doing. They're the things that the Lord is saying. We can so easily get so caught up in the chaos and the voices that are all around us, maybe even those voices that are inside of us, and we lose sight of the things that the Lord has already planned for us. And so look at what he reminds the exiles in verse 11. He reminds them to rest in the future. In verse 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So it's here in the midst of one of the darkest moments in their national history, certainly the darkest moment in the lives of these particular people. And the Lord gives to them one of the most 
precious promises in all his word. And we've all heard it. We've probably likely been strengthened by it. We may have even encouraged others with it. It's on mugs. It's on calendars. It's on journals. It's on t-shirts. It happens to be hanging on the wall of our living room at home. And to me, this precious promise is just that much more powerful and even more profound when we now know the whole context in which it was given. This isn't a promise about sunny skies over green fields with floating rainbows. This was about forced captivity in the midst of pagan wickedness and rampant idolatry. Here were these Jews living in the experience of God's harsh judgment upon their nation, and it would have been very easy for them to think that God was against them and that indeed he was intending evil for them, but God assures them that he is always thinking about them and that his thoughts towards them were of peace, and that in his heart and in his mind, he had a future and a hope for them. And this promise, which in context was made to these ancient Jews that were under this Babylonian exile, but it still expresses the unchanging heart of God towards all of his people. These were God's thoughts towards Israel under the old covenant, and there's no way we should think that his view of us is any less favorable now as those who've come to him through his son Jesus in the New Testament. God has a future and God has a hope for each one of us as his people, even when we seem to be suffering in exile, even when we're hurting under deserved divine discipline or judgment. And I think even and especially when we're suffering through no fault of our own directly. But you see, it's the, it's the devil's deception to rob people of the reality of the future and the hope that God provides for us as his children. Because what the enemy does is he gets our eyes off of the Lord and he gets us so focused instead on our affliction and maybe just the sheer injustice of what we're going through. Because what I think it's important to remember in order for us to hold on to this hope of what the Lord has planned for us is that so often his glorious plan only comes about out of that very affliction. You see, it was the 70-year Babylonian exile that was a critical part of God's plan to give Judah that future, and that hope. It's as though God's saying to his people, yes, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years, but while you are there, I want you to know that the thoughts that I'm thinking towards you are of peace and their plans to bring you to a glorious end because I'm doing something in you even during this difficult time that I couldn't possibly do under normal circumstances. And indeed he was. Because historically we know that when the Jews went into Babylon, they were an extremely idolatrous people. And when they came out again, they never again struggled 
with the worship of idols. They were purged and they were healed and they were matured during these difficult days of that Babylonian captivity. And we look around and we notice that he wasn't just working in them, but he was also working through them because what we see is that God had yet another special purpose in this captivity and it was to scatter synagogues and to scatter the teachings of the Old Testament all throughout that region of the world for the preparation of the gospel which would come so many years later. God was doing that all through this. So we have to ask the question, who knows what the Lord might do through this time as we deal with COVID-19? Already we see that the footprint of the church has increased digitally, right? Exponentially. Already we're reaching people individually who may have never stepped foot into a church ordinarily, right? Already there's this sense of a spiritual hunger that's been born from the uncertainty and the anxiety that people are experiencing as they're, they're having their lives and their routines disrupted. It's kind of like the rug has been pulled out from underneath them. And we're seeing that the church has been forced back to basics, right? back to those spiritual realities that make us that peculiar people that Peter talks about, that special and unique people that we are called to be. So this verse should be one of our favorites in the Bible because it speaks to us that even in these times when things look bad, even when the Babylonians seem to be carrying us away, even when we seem to be being kept in captivity, that the Lord is using it for something glorious that goes far deeper than whatever it is that we can usually see and is always far better than anything that we ever expected. Because look in the last few verses of our text this morning. The Lord explains to them that their future and their hope wasn't just in their eventual return from exile, but it was in something far more eternal. He says, Then you will call upon me, verse 12, and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So it was through the hardship of being conquered and losing loved ones and living under this foreign nation, God's covenant people called on him. Right? They were forced to search for him with their whole hearts. And what happened is that they found him again. And this, he says, is what their future and their hope really is. See, their future and their hope was not at all in where they were living or when they might return to Jerusalem, when they might get to start worshiping again in their temple, but their future and their hope was that they could be in relationship with him even now wherever they 
were. And he was bringing them back to that place, just as I think he's doing with us. That God would still listen to their prayers when they prayed. And them praying and God answering this intimate connection with him, that's the foundation of their present and their future hope. They would get back to Jerusalem eventually, but until that time, they could continue to worship him and maybe even do it in a way that they hadn't done it in a very, very long time. Now, I know that none of these parallels in this picture are perfect, but there are parts of their experience that I think are, are profoundly applicable to us. And there was one author, one pastor who commented that what life does to us depends largely on what life finds in us. And I think that's never more applicable than it is to the Christian life. If we're seeking the Lord and if we're wanting his best, then whatever circumstance we're in will build us up and will prepare us for those things that he has planned. But if we rebel, and if we're just looking for the quick, easy shortcut, then more than not, our circumstances are going to destroy us and rob us of that future that God wants us to enjoy. It's sometimes said that the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. Or apparently, I just learned, there's an African proverb that says something similar. It says that the same boiling water that softens the potato also hardens the egg. So my encouragement to us as a church is let's be a little more potato than we are egg. More potato head than egg head. Mr. Potato, you get the idea. I know you're all rolling on the floor, laughing out loud, R-O-T-F-L-O-L, whatever it is you're doing at home. So listen, whether we're in this for another few weeks or whether in this for a few months, whether our new normal ever really looks like our old normal did, the Lord knows that. But for now, I truly believe that we can settle into it and we can allow the Lord to really enable us even to thrive in the midst of it because we are still the church. Right? We are still the body of Christ. And Calvary Mountain View is an absolutely beautiful expression of that body. And all of us as a local church body, we can press into these things. We can be faithful to them. We can be that person who calls a different person of our church family each day just to check on them. We can be that person that keeps encouraging brothers and sisters on social media or through messaging or, or over email. We could even be that person by writing an actual note and putting it in this thing called an envelope. And there are these little sticky deals that are called stamps that go right in the corner. And then they magically go and they arrive in mailboxes like glorious gifts to brighten up somebody's day. 
right? We can continue meeting online for our worship services and for our small groups and for our prayer times. And we can do all of these things knowing that the day is going to come when we are going to be together again. And we'll be speaking in person and we'll be worshiping together in person and we will be singing together in unison and we'll be praying together, not just in the spirit, but we'll be praying together in body as well. We'll be sharing the Lord's table together. We'll be fellowshipping and we'll be interacting in all of those personal, physical, together ways. All of that will happen. But until then, we can continue to be salt and light as we really witness to those around us. We can speak peace into their chaos as they simply look and see our settled and our faithful response. Maybe we can encourage them when they ask how it is that we can be so calm in the midst of all this, and we can explain to them that it's because we know. We know God's thoughts and his plans concerning us come from his heart for us. We know that those plans lead to peace that are produced by him, in our hearts as we direct them to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we do pray in the midst of uh, just these unprecedented times, Lord, so much uncertainty. Lord, we pray that you would be our certainty in the midst of all of this. Father, that you would be that rock-solid place of refuge, Lord, that your thoughts and your plans and that future and that hope that we have in you, Lord, would produce peace in us. And Lord, we pray that that peace would be seen, Lord, and that we would be able to um, just to proclaim that and to infuse that into, um, into the lives of those around us. And so we thank you, Lord, for this time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. God bless you guys and uh, stick around. We've got one more song just to continue uh, in our time of worship. And then uh, we will see you all, I hope, online this week for uh, our Monday night prayer and men's groups and women's groups and all of these different things, um, regroup in the middle of the week uh, and all that. So God bless you guys and have a blessed time this week.